This afternoon the sight of Bob's cheerful, freckled face had given her discontent a new direction. She thought it was part of the hardship of her life that there was laid upon her the burden of larger wants than others seemed to feel, that she had to endure this wide, hopeless yearning for that something, whatever it was, that was greatest and best on this earth. She wished she could have been like Bob, with his easily satisfied ignorance, or like Tom, who had something to do on which he could fix his mind with a steady purpose, and disregard everything else. Poor child! As she leaned her head against the window frame, with her hands clasped tighter and tighter, and her foot beating the ground, she was as lonely in her trouble as if she had been the only girl in the civilized world of that day who had come out of her school life with a soul untrained for inevitable struggles, with no other part of her inherited share in the hard-worn treasures of thought which generations of painful toil have laid up for the race of men, than shreds and patches of feeble literature and false history. With much futile information about Saxon and other kings of doubtful example, but unhappily quite without that knowledge of the irreversible laws within and without her, which, governing the habits, becomes morality, and, developing the feelings of submission and dependence, becomes religion. As lonely as her, in her trouble as if every other girl besides herself had been cherished and watched over by elder minds, not forgetful of their own early time when need was keen and impulse strong. At last Maggie's eyes glanced down on the books that lay on the window shelf, and she half forsook her reverie to turn over listlessly the leaves of the portrait gallery, but she soon pushed this aside to examine the little row of books tied together with string. Beauties of the Spectator, Rasselas, Economy of Human Life, Gregory's Letters. She knew the sort of matter that was inside of all these. The Christian Year, that seemed to be a hymn book, and she laid it down again. But Thomas A. Kempis? The name had come across her in her reading, and she felt the satisfaction, which everyone knows, of getting some ideas to attach to a name that strays solitary in the memory. She took up the little old clumsy book with some curiosity. It had the corners turned down in many places, and some hand, now however quiet, had made at certain passages strong pen and ink marks, long since browned by time. Maggie turned from leaf to leaf, and read where the quiet hand pointed. Know that the love of thyself does hurt thee more than anything in the world. If thou seekest this or that, and wouldst be here or there to enjoy thy own will and pleasure, thou shalt never be quiet nor free from care. For in everything somewhat will be wanting, and in every place there will be some that will cross thee, both above and below which way soever thou dost turn thee, everywhere thou shalt find the cross, and everywhere the necessity thou must have patience, if thou wilt have inward peace and enjoy an everlasting crown. If thou desirest to mount unto this height, thou must set out courageously, and lay the axe to the root, that thou mayest pluck up and destroy that hidden inordinate inclination to thyself, and unto all private and earthly good. On this sin, that a man inordinately loveth himself, almost all dependeth, so whatsoever is thoroughly to be overcome. Which evil being once overcome and subdued, there will presently ensue a great peace and tranquillity. It is but little thou sufferest in comparison of them that have suffered so much, 
were so strongly tempted, so grievously afflicted, so many ways tried and exercised. Thou oughtest therefore to call to mind the more heavy sufferings of others, that thou mayest the easier bear thy little adversities. And if they seem not little unto thee, beware lest thy impatience be the cause thereof. Blessed are those ears that receive the whispers of the divine voice, and listen not to the whisperings of the world. Blessed are those ears which hearken on, not unto the voice which soundeth outwardly, but unto the truth which teacheth inwardly. A strange thrill of awe passed through Maggie while she read, as if she had been wakened in the night by a strain of solemn music, telling of who beings whose souls had been astir while hers was in stupor. She went on from one brown mark to another, where the quiet hand seemed to point, hardly conscious that she was reading, seeming rather to listen while a low voice said, Why dost thou here gaze about, since this is not the place of thy rest? In heaven ought to be thy dwelling, and all earthly things are to be looked on as they forward thy journey thither. All things pass away, and thou together with them. Beware thou cleverest not to unto them, lest thou be entangled and perish. If a man should give all his substance, yet it as is nothing. And if he should do great penances, yet are they but little. And if he should attain to all knowledge, he is yet far off. And if he should be of great virtue and very fervent devotion, yet is there much wanting, to wit one thing which is most necessary for him. What is that? That, having left all, he leave himself and go wholly out of himself, and retain nothing but of self-love. I have often said unto thee, and now again I say the same, Forsake thyself, resign thyself, and thou shalt enjoy much inward peace. Then shall all vain imaginations, evil perturbations, and superfluous cares fly away. Then shall immoderate fear leave thee, and inordinate love shall die. Maggie drew a long breath and pushed her heavy hair back, as if to see a sudden vision more clearly. Here, then, was a secret of life that would enable her to renounce all other secrets. Here was a sublime height to be reached without the help of outward things. Here was insight and strength and conquest to be won by means entirely within her own soul, where a supreme teacher was waiting to be heard. It flashed through her like the suddenly apprehended solution of a problem, that all the miseries of her young life had come from fixing her heart on her own pleasure, as if that were the central necessity of the universe. And for the first time she saw the possibility of shifting the position from which she looked at the gratification of her own desires, of taking her stand out of herself and looking at her own life as an insignificant part of a divinely guided whole. She read on and on in the old book, devouring eagerly the dialogues with the invisible teacher, the pattern of sorrow, the source of all strength. Returning to it, after she had been called away, and reading till the sun went down behind the willows, with all the hurry of an imagination that could never rest in the present, she sat in the deepening twilight forming plans of self-humiliation and entire devotedness and in the order of first discovery, renunciation seemed to her the entrance into that satisfaction which she had so long been craving in vain. She had not perceived 
How could she until she had lived longer? The innermost truth of the old monk's outpourings, that renunciation remains sorrow, though a sorrow born willingly. Maggie was still panting for happiness. It was an ecstasy because she had found the key to it. She knew nothing of doctrines and systems, of mysticism or quietism, but this voice out of the far-off Middle Ages was the direct communication of a human soul's belief and experience, and came to Maggie as an unquestioned message. I suppose that is the reason why the small old-fashioned book, for which you need only pay six pence at a bookstall, works miracles to this day, turning bitter waters into sweetness, while expensive sermons and treatises nearly issued leave all things as they were before. It was written down by a hand that waited for the heart's prompting. It is the chronicle of a solitary hidden anguish, struggle, trust, and triumph, not written on velvet cushions to teach endurance to those who are treading with bleeding feet on the stones. And so it remains to all time a lasting record of human needs and human consolations. The voice of a brother who, ages ago, felt and suffered and renounced, in the cloister perhaps, with serge gown and tonsured head, with much chanting and long fasts, and with a fashion of speech different from ours, but under the same silent far-off heavens, and with the same passionate desires, the same strivings, the same failures, the same weariness. In writing the history of unfashionable families, one is apt to fall into a tone of emphasis which is very far from being the tone of good society, where principles and beliefs are not only of an extremely moderate kind, but are always presupposed, no subject being eligible but such as can be touched with a light and graceful irony. But then good society has its claret and its velvet carpets, its dinner engagements six weeks deep, its opera, and its fairy ballrooms, rides off its ennui on thoroughbred horses, lounges at the club, has to keep clear of crinoline vortices, gets its science done by Faraday, and its religion by the superior clergy who are to be met in the best houses. How should it have time or need for belief and emphasis? But good society, floated on gossamer rings of light irony, is a very expensive production, requiring nothing less than a wide and arduous national life condensed in unfragrant deafening factories, cramping itself in mines, sweating at furnaces, grinding, hammering, weaving under more or less oppression of carbonic acid, or else spread over sheepwalks, and scattered in lonely houses and huts on the clayey or chalky cornlands, where the rainy days look dreary. This wide national life is based entirely on emphasis, the emphasis of want, which urges it into all the activities necessary for the maintenance of good society and light irony. It spends its heavy years often in a chill, uncarpeted fashion amidst family discord unsoftened by long corridors. Under such circumstances, there are many among its myriads of souls who have absolutely needed an emphatic belief life in this unpleasurable shape, demanding some solution even to unspeculative minds. Just as you inquire into the stuffing of your couch when anything galls you there, whereas either down and perfect French springs excite no question. Some have an emphatic belief in alcohol, and seeks their ecstasies, or outside standing ground in gin. 
But the rest requires something that good society calls enthusiasm, something that will present motives in an entire absence of high prizes, something that will give patience and feed human love with the limbs ache with weariness and human looks are hard upon us, something clearly that lies outside personal desires, that includes resignation for ourselves, an active love for what is not ourselves. Now and then that sort of enthusiasm finds a far-echoing voice that comes from an experience springing out of the deepest need, and it was by being brought within the long, lingering vibrations of such a voice that Maggie, with her girl's face and unnoted sorrows, found an effort and a hope that helped her through years of loneliness, making out a faith for herself without the aid of established authorities and appointed guides, for they were not at hand, and her need was pressing. From what you know of her, you will not be surprised that she threw some exaggeration and willfulness, some pride and impetuosity, even into her self-renunciation. Her own life was still a drama for her, in which she demanded of herself that her part should be played with intensity. And so it came to pass that she often lost the spirit of humility by being excessive in the outward act. She often strove after too high a flight, and came down with her poor little half-fledged wings dabbled in the mud. For example, she not only determined to work at plain sewing, that she might contribute something toward the fund of the tin-box, but she went, in the first instance, in her zeal of self-mortification, to ask for it at a linen shop in St. Ogg's, instead of getting it in a more quiet and indirect way. She could see nothing but what was entirely wrong and unkind, nay, persecuting, in Tom's reproof of her for this unnecessary act. I don't like my sister to do such things, said Tom. I'll take care that the debts are paid, without your lowering yourself in that way. Surely there was some tenderness and bravery mingled with the worldliness and self-assertion of that little speech. But Maggie held it as dross, overlooking the grains of gold, and took Tom's rebuke as one of her outward crosses. Tom was very hard to her, she used to think, in her long night watchings, to her who had always loved him so, and then she strove to be contented with that hardness, and to require nothing. That is the path we all like when we set out in our abandonment of egoism, the path of martyrdom and endurance, where the palm branches grow rather than the steep highway of tolerance such allowance and self-blame, where there are no leafy honors to be gathered and worn. The old books, Virgil, Euclid, and Aldrich, that wrinkled fruit of the tree of knowledge, had been all laid by. For Maggie had turned her back on the vain ambition to share the thoughts of the wise. In her first ardor, she flung away the books with a sort of triumph that she had risen above the need of them and if they had been her own, she would have burned them, believing that she would never repent. She read so eagerly and constantly in her three books, the Bible, Thomas A. Kempis, and the Christian Year, no longer rejected as a hymn-book, that they filled her mind with a continual stream of rhythmic memories, and she was too ardently learning to see all nature and life in the light of her new faith, to need any other material for her mind to work on as she sat with her well-plied needle, making shirts and other complicated stitchings, falsely called plain, by no means plain to Maggie, 
since the wristband and sleeve and the like had a capability of being sewed on the wrong side outward in moments of mental wandering. Hanging diligently over her sewing, Maggie was a sight any one might have been pleased to look at. That new inward life of hers, notwithstanding some volcanic upheavings of imprisoned passions, yet shone out in her face with a tender, soft light that mingled itself as added loveliness with the gradually enriched color and outline of her blossoming youth. Her mother felt the change in her with a sort of puzzled wonder that Maggie should be growing up so good. It was amazing that this once contrary child was becoming so submissive, so backward to assert her own will. Maggie used to look up from her work and find her mother's eyes fixed upon her. They were watching and waiting for the large young glance, as if her elder frame got some needful warmth from it. The mother was getting fond of her tall, brown girl, the only bit of furniture now in which she could bestow her anxiety and pride, and Maggie, in spite of her own ascetic wish to have no personal adornment, was obliged to give way to her mother about her hair, and submit to have the abundant black locks plaited into a coronet on the summit of her head after the pitiable fashion of those antiquated times. "'Let your mother have that bit of pleasure, my dear,' said Mrs. Tulliver. "'I had trouble enough with your hair once.' So Maggie, glad of anything that would soothe her mother and cheer their long day together, consented to the vain decoration, and showed a queenly head above her old frocks, steadily refusing, however, to look at herself in the glass. Mrs. Tulliver liked to call the father's attention to Maggie's hair and other unexpected virtues, but he had a brusque reply to give. I knew well enough what she'd be before now. It's nothing new to me. But it's a pity she isn't made of commoner stuff. She'll be thrown away, I doubt. There'll be nobody to marry her as is fit for her. And Maggie's graces of mind and body fed his gloom. He sat patiently enough while she read him a chapter, or said something timidly when they were alone together about trouble being turned into a blessing. He took it all as part of his daughter's goodness, which made his misfortunes the sadder to him, because they damaged her chance in life. In a mind charged with an eager purpose and an unsatisfied vindictiveness, there was no room for new feelings. Mr. Tulliver did not want spiritual consolation. He wanted to shake off the degradation of debt and to have his revenge. End of Book 4, Chapter 3 Recording by Jeanne in Washington, D.C.